Welcome to episode 61 of the McSauce Comic Book Podcast. My name is Paul McGinty. With me tonight are Ian Sharpley. Hello. And Matt Cassell. Hello. It is Saturday night, and we are excited to be here on a Saturday night to record episode 61 of the podcast. 61 being the number of the New York Rangers' Rick Nash, who should have been crying all day today because he is a big, fat, underproducing Overpaid loser. Boo. Let's hear it from yeah, yeah. Um, Los Angeles Kings, my favorite hockey team, won their second Stanley Cup in the America's last team. night. Let's America's be, team. Let's be honest. So I've been riding a high all day long. Tonight's podcast, we're going to talk about the Netflix Daredevil casting. We're going to talk about the proposed, rumored DC movie schedule for like the next 30 years. And we're going to do a little what you've been reading. But before we get into the subject matter of the episode, housekeeping with Ian Sharpley. If you're like me, I know it's Wednesday and the Kings won a long time ago, but you're still hungover from that victory. You need something else to take your mind and, and ground you in reality because you've been flying so high with thoughts of little baby dynasty drifting around in your brain. What is going to ground you in reality? Not McSauce.com, but go there anyway and check out... The reviews, the strips, the podcast. Go to the Facebook page, like us, communicate with us that way. You can also hit us up on Twitter at Lil Depressed Matt, at The Sauce, at Git underscore Mix Sauce. Paul is really active on the old Twitter there. Talks to a lot of people. Not as active. Favorites as, a lot of things. Not as active as someone like Greg Capullo, writer of Batman, or artist on Batman. It's like, this is news to me. I don't know how that guy throws books and has a Twitter presence. But pretty active. More active than Ian Sharpley or Matt Cassell. Yeah, I don't, I don't get on there a lot, but when I do, I favorite things. <laughs> and something that I favored in recently is a fireside chat. You can talk to Ryan Cor- McCormick at Fireside Chat this week, although it is not available in iTunes right now, even though he posted it on Libsyn, you can find the second part of the McSauce interview with Paul and myself. We talk a little bit more about strip creation and how we met each other, all that good McSauce origin stuff that you like to hear. So go to Fireside Chat. You can find him also on iTunes, Libsyn.com, like his Facebook page, and uh, send him a little bit of that McSauce love. This week, at the beautiful, dynamic Oaks Theater in Oakmont, PA, Moonlit Matinee, Film Festival at the Oaks, presented by Turner's Premium Iced Tea. This weekend, June 20th and 21st, Caddyshack, the classic golf-inspired film with Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Rodney Dangerfield, and that gopher. Never saw it all the way through. Really? Wow. I've seen bits and pieces, and it's never held my interest, and I've never never cared to go back and watch the entire thing. Director Harold, Harold Ramis is on that thing. It was one of his first directorial I know it's one of those 80s ventures. classics, and I feel like I should like that movie, but I don't. Matt, do you like that movie? I've only seen it once, and it was really? a long time ago. 
I'm actually more familiar with Caddyshack 2. Really? I don't think I've ever seen Caddyshack 2. Caddyshack 2 stars um, Richard from Weekend at Bernie's, whatever that actor's name is. I forget. Paul, help me out. Um, oh, man. Robert Stack? No. no. Jackie Mason? No. no. It's a Jewish name. Jonathan Silverman? That's it. That's the one. <laughs> Racist. Well, it is. Diane Cannon? Is that what made Diane Cannon famous? Caddyshack 2? Who? Who the fuck Diane, Diane Cannon? We don't know Diane Cannon from the Lakers games? Like, on the sidelines? It's like Jack and Diane Cannon back in the 80s? No? We don't know that? Diane no? Cannon. Alright. I guess that's just me. Oh, her. Yeah. Yikes. She looked good back in the day. Yeah, she did. Now, but now she's it's, a yeah, it's a bad time. Now looks like she's wearing a mask. The only thing I know from her is oh, she's Diane always Cannon. she's yeah. always on the sidelines at Lakers. Still, and I mean, yes, yeah, still. I mean, you don't they don't put the camera on her anymore. But well, why would you? Back in the day, though, good stuff. Yeah, she had it going on. Yeah, why she did. She didn't want to age, did she? No, she's refusing to age in some of these pictures here. So she had a little work done, it, it appears. A little bit of work. Man, when she was back in her prime, she had it going on. Oh, jeez. Oh, I came across the Oh, my goodness. Picture. That's bad times. Yeah, that's horrible. Oh, my. Yeah, it's, it's some scary stuff. You can play along at home, kids. Type in Diane Cannon to the Google machine. I liked it better when we were looking at pictures of Bonnie Rotten. Yeah, that was much better. So, uh, the Oaks Theater last night showed um, Friday the 13th on Friday, Friday the, the 13th. 13th. And wow, did they have a good turnout last night. So I think these plugs are definitely helping. They had uh, over 150 people at the show last night. A lot of fun. Um, the thing that I didn't realize, because I haven't seen Friday the 13th since I was just a wee little, little... Depressed little boy. Boy. Did you go? I went, yeah. And um, what I didn't realize was Friday the 13th is a comedy. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Everything from when the camera panned up to show one of the actress's faces as she's sitting there and her head is right at... Uh, dick level of Kevin Bacon and the camera pans up and you see Kevin Bacon's like dick in his speedos. I think mm. they like to call that dick eye view. Dick eye view, yeah. And uh, and it's right there and then that's like seconds before Kevin Bacon goes running down the docks and tries to do a, a slick dive into the, into the lake but ends up just doing a belly flop. And then don't get me started on the fisticuffs at the end. Um, with uh, with Mrs. Voorhees and the the main heroine, who just so happened to be the most homely girl in the entire movie. Does he? Does Kevin Bacon make it to the end of that movie? Oh, he does not. The, when does he die? He would be one of the early to middle deaths. Shortly after he gets done fucking a girl, you Absolutely. know that your he, he gets done fucking a girl, and then he goes to light up. A joint, and of course, that's when he gets a spear through the back of the neck and then out through the front. Well, that's him committing two sins. He's doing drugs, he was having premarital sex, 
Jason hates that shit. Yeah. And Jason's mother. Well, Jason's mother gave him, like, a two on his belly flop and felt he needed to die for that. You know that your career didn't go quite the way that you wanted it. Whenever you're in a classic movie, or it is a classic movie, and most of the actors do not have headshots in IMDb. There are, like, three actors that have pictures on IMDb. So you didn't like Friday the 13th. No, it was good, but it was entertaining in a in a comedic way. I yeah. mean, the audience was all laughing at it, and I don't think it was one of those movies that was supposed to be funny when it came out. Yeah. But it and you know, sometimes like your audiences might laugh at movies because they they just think that they're I don't know, they're just maybe trying to make fun of it to make it more funny than it is, but this was legitimately funny. And everybody was cracking up during the whole thing. And it kind of made it a, a lot of fun. That's cool. When was it made? I was trying to put a date on it, but probably in the 70s. 1980, right? so. I thought it was 80, but it, it looked more 70s than, than 1980. But, okay. Every decade has that period of, like, one or two years where it still holds on to the past decade's True. Yeah. weirdness. Yeah. Does Empire Strikes Back look like a 70s movie? That, that does a little bit, right? Don't you think? You can tell. Some of the hairdos, even though they're on Hoth, they still have feathered hair. I feel it, it's an 80s movie. Mm-hmm. It has a more of an 80s polish than, than the roughness that the original had from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that even music from decade to decade... It kind of still hangs on, stuff hangs on, like that late 2000s kind of sounds like 90s music, don't you think? Yeah. No, I think I'm alone. Gosh, I hope not. I no. hate the 90s. I like the 90s. Big yeah. 90s guy. I think both of you guys really like the 90s. Yeah. I was talking some Everclear and Eve 6 today at work. Yeah, but like I like I like 90s, but I don't think I like the 90s that everyone else liked. You liked Matthew Sweet, which I put on at work today. Right. Sweet Tooth. Uh, what others? There's a, there's a lot of, like, I guess it was late 90s when everything swung into, like, Creed and Stained and Disturbed and all that stuff, which I absolutely loathe. It wasn't, um, like, Blink-182's first couple albums were 90s albums. Yeah, it yeah. It wasn't into those or Like, Dude Ranch stuff. is, like, 1996 yeah. or 7, somewhere around there. Um, Enema of the States, 99. Mm. Close to the 2000s. Right. But yeah, we're, we're products of the 90s. That's, that's when we lived our formative years. So why wouldn't we be fans of 90s music? I still, I still enjoy a lot of music that's out today. I like new things. I try to have a open mind to new music. But if I have my choice, man, I'll put some 90s stuff on. Yeah. So why don't Do you, you have like, a decade why don't that you, you like, like 90s that? music? Mm, well, I'm a, a heavy metal guy, and the 90s were a, a dark time for heavy metal. It's, you know, they were riding high um, throughout the 80s, really the 70s and 80s, and um, then hair metal came along and started to destroy it, and then grunge came out and really destroyed it, and grunge was kind of what... 
when I think of 90s music, I think of grunge, and I hate grunge. Like, the band that I hate more than any other band, I think... This is going to be one of my favorites, I bet. Nirvana. Oh, no. I don't like Nirvana. I hate Nirvana. Whenever I hear that fuckhead Kurt Cobain, or should I say no-head Kurt Cobain... Oh, oh too, oh, soon. Oh, too oh, soon. Too soon. How dare you. Nirvana. On the radio, it's yeah, that shit has to... Whatever. That shit has to be, like, turned off immediately. Uh, but yeah, I hate I hate grunge and all that. And then the nineties. What didn't you like about well, grunge? What's funny about just Matt's the- hatred of grunge is that he hates it because it was just another step in destroying the metal that he liked. But I, I always I've always felt negative towards some grunge because it killed the hair metal that I liked. And I like grunge because it killed the hair metal that you liked. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I like a little bit of hair metal because I think because I remember it. That was the first metal that I was introduced to when I was probably about nine or ten years old. But um, as I started to, you know, get exposed to more different heavy metal, I realized kind of like just kind of the breadth of of diversity out there, and then I was able to kind of discern the good from the bad, and. Um, there were still some good things that were produced in the '90s, like um, you know, certain bands kept kept carrying the torch. Like uh, Iron Maiden still was coming out with some good stuff, and uh, even the singer for Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson, went and he uh, did a couple solo albums, which are some of my absolute favorite heavy metal albums. So good things did come from there, but you just didn't have the breadth of of heavy metal in the '90s that. Um, the 80s had, and then when we got into the 2000s, heavy metal started to kind of make its resurgence with, of all things, that um, new metal, that like almost rap metal hybrid like for Lincoln a little while. Like yeah. P.O.D. Right, and, and that like kind that. of got the ball rolling in the right direction. Um, and then other more, I think, like, more hardcore sounds where they dropped the rap and then they started doing the growls but then brought, like, the guitar solos back in and made musicianship, like, really important again. Um, And now heavy metal's kind of... I mean, it's not what it was in the 80s, but it's still very... It's very alive and well. I think that it's also easier to find stuff nowadays... Or in the '90s, it's you were you were kind of left at the mercy of whatever was popular on the radio. Sure. Now you can go out there on the internet, you yep. can find anything that you want, and become a, a passionate fan of whatever genre that you would like. And, and there's a big following. You can find like-minded people all over the world. Yep. And uh, talk to them in an, in an instant with like Twitter and Facebook and all that. You know what happened in the '90s? Comic books. Well, yeah, I was going to stick with heavy metal for just a second. <laughs> um, that's when uh, Tim Ripper Owens was... was um, Friend of the show. Friend of the show, Tim Ripper Owens. He was, he was discovered. That's not a lie. In 19... That isn't a lie. 96, I believe, he was discovered by, by Judas Priest. Actually, I don't think Tim is a big listener to the show. But he's a friend of the show and explain to the audience how. Toot well, your own horn, damn it. Tim Ripper Owens uh, is is the former lead singer of Judas Priest, and 
uh, about, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago. Uh, I got in touch with him through email. I, I emailed him out of the blue and I basically told him this back when I worked at GNC and I said, Hey, I'm a professional graphic designer for GNC because you know, that carries some clout. Yeah. It sounds really great. And, um, and I used that to tell him, you know, just obviously I'm legit. It's GNC. Come on. And, uh, I said, I would love to design the next album cover for your solo band. Now this was well after he was relieved of his duties in Judas Priest, um, I think he sang in Judas Priest until about 2002, um, and I probably reached out to him in 2006, something like that, maybe 2007, um, and by then he had done a couple other side projects, and he had his own band called Beyond Fear, and I wanted to do the artwork for the next Beyond Fear album. And I said, hey, I would love to, to do your next album art, and he responded, and he said, yeah, great. Um, let me see uh, some ideas. I'm thinking about calling it Feel the Power or Judgment Day. And I was like, Awesome. This is incredible. I'm a big fan. I already know what the next album might be called. Um, so uh, I, I came up with a few different concepts. Me and actually a couple guys that I worked with at GNC, we, we banged out some concepts and, and sent them along. And I can remember the email that he sent back. He goes, um, these look really good. Keep up the good work. And that was it. And so dismissive. It was kind of dismissive. And, and I felt kind of terrible about it because we had – really kind of like been really excited and passionate about this opportunity. So we were sure to do our absolute best and we, we did it quickly because we really wanted to, you know, show him that we were serious and everything. But now that, now that you're on the actual friendly basis with him and you've exchanged a lot of correspondence with him, you know, that's just his way. That is just his way. That short email wasn't dismissive. That's just, how he writes emails. That is how he writes emails. He has a very distinctive uh, email, uh, a lot of LOLs, um, a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of, um, yeah, short sentences, quick to the point, um, and that's just the way it is. But yeah, so, so uh, I'm trying to make this a quick story, but I guess I'm failing miserably. So. Uh, Sent him the ideas. He was what we thought was dismissive, and the other guys that I was working with on on these different concepts kind of lost interest at that point. And eventually, we all sort of got laid off from GNC and went our separate ways. Um, then, about three, four months later, out of the blue, I got another email from him, and it said, "Hey, my manager wants to have me do a solo album next instead of another Beyond Fear album." And, um, one of the cool things is manager is actually Wendy Dio. And if you are a heavy metal fan, um, you might recognize the name Dio. That would be Ronnie James Dio's wife who managed Ronnie James Dio until he passed away in 2009, 2010, I think 2010. And, um, so I was like, awesome, so maybe we can take one of these original concepts that we worked on and kind of tweak it and finesse it 
to get to um, to something that is pretty cool. So that's what I did. I worked on it and I sent it along and he liked it, but he kept wanting more options and, and I was doing different ideas all the time. And this was shortly after Paul and I started working together. And I can remember I would come into work and I would show Paul and share my ideas with him. And What was Paul's feedback? Um, yeah, Paul, good, buddy. Was, keep work. Keep up the good work. Yeah. What was your feedback? I don't really remember. I mean, I don't... I, I like the stuff you were doing, but you weren't getting a lot of concrete direction from Tim Owen. No, they, a lot of it, it was really kind of me driving. You were really creative. left up to your own devices. He was like, you know... I, Oh, maybe we should make this bigger. Oh, maybe you know, move this over here. But more red. Yeah, yeah. There, there wasn't wasn't a whole lot of well. You know, I really like what this concept is is saying, but you know, maybe we should try to take it in this direction. Those are some yeah, good work, buddy. Keep those, going. Those are the pitfalls of being a designer and working <laughs> with somebody that maybe doesn't know to give you that kind of direction, or you kind of just bang around and try to find what is going to work for them and they don't know how to communicate to you exactly or they don't they also don't know hey i can take pieces from this thumbnail and pieces from this that i like and put them together and make a new logo or something like that people yeah. never understand like you can do that yeah Fine. well i think the thing with him he just had to see tons of different things until he saw the one that he liked right uh, yeah that's it you know and i can remember i I probably did like probably four completely different options for him for the solo thing, plus variations on those different versions and different illustrations. And, and then I started working on the logo design for him because he had never released a solo album. So he's he needs, you know, a good metal logo, which that might be the thing I'm most proud of the way that the logo turned out. And I can remember I sent him tons of different logo designs and then and it felt really good, like, okay, I'm totally I have the job, I'm I'm working out all these different design ideas. And then he told me the record label is gonna pr- try to come up with some different cover options and, and stuff like as shit. well. And I, I was like, oh no, the the record they're gonna use their own art guys. Man, they're not gonna go with my stuff. So I can remember I was on vacation uh, in Hawaii, actually, and he's emailing me. And I'm, like, on my phone emailing him back. And uh, he's like, yeah, here's what the record label sent. And I don't, I don't really even like any of these. So I looked at them, and I was like, eh, I guess, yeah, they're not real good. Do you remember those, Paul? I think I showed those to you a while back. Vaguely. And um, so it felt really good to hear him say, I didn't really like any of these and um, so basically I, I forced it out of him at that point. I'm like, are you telling me then I got the job? Like we're going with mine? And he basically finally said, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll talk when you get back from vacation. Enjoy yourself. And, um, you know, after that there were a few – I can remember the first time he called me. We're, we're working out ideas and he was like um, – Here's here's my cell number. Just give me a call and we'll talk about it. Now you have to understand. For for you guys, it probably would have been like any old phone call. But for me, <laughs> it was like I'm a huge fan. I had listened yeah. to him when he was singing in Judas Priest. So like this was I'm like totally starstruck, and I'm like oh my god, I have to call this guy. I'm so nervous. I'm talking too fast. Where I'm t- 
talking faster than the words are coming out, so I'm stumbling over myself like a jackass. And um, But you've got to imagine that he probably gets that all the time. I guess so. I mean, maybe. I don't know. But he, he definitely got it from me the first time I called him, and I was trying to be so cool and collected, and I, I was just a dummy. Like over the phone, I can remember, and I don't, it was it was so bad, and um, so then then once I got the cover gig, then he got me in touch with the the record label manager, and he was saying, well, you know, I might have the record label work on the interior and the logo, and then the record label guy was like, no, we just want Matt to to go ahead and do the logo and interior that would just be easier and I was like okay so I had to bang out I had like a year to work on the cover but then I had like two weeks to do the interior booklet which required just as much illustrating and everything less finessing but still and it was cool though because he was sending me all the songs before you know they would come out and he's like just don't show these to people and he would send me the lyrics you know and I was like oh this is kind of cool um and then I would read the lyrics and then kind of draw pictures that kind of went along with the lyrics and everything and ultimately put the, the whole thing together. And, um, yeah, it's probably the project I'm most proud of. But ever since then, I've gotten to do uh, different gig flyers and, and, and I designed his the logo for his restaurant that he, that he owns in lovely Akron, Ohio, the, um, the Ripper Owens Rock House, which... I feel partially responsible for naming. Um, I kind of steered him toward that name instead of... He wanted to call it the uh, Tim Ripper Owens Rockin' Sports Eatery, I think. But so much. Yeah, it was a mouthful. So I, I told him, I'm telling you, Ripper's Rock House. And I, and I took it and I did a logo for him. Like, here's what I'm thinking. And, and from there we finessed that. Um, and that was a lot of fun to kind of get that down. And I got to do some like the decor for the inside of the restaurant. Like I did the restroom sign on a, like a drum head and, um, some t-shirt designs for the place. And, uh, and so the name of the album is, is it play my game? Is that right? Yeah. It's Tim Ripper Owens play my game. Uh, and that is his debut solo album. And he um, he hasn't released a whole lot since then. He, I mean, he's been all over the place. He sang in Judas Priest, like I said. He sang in uh, with Ingve Malmsteen, the the guitar virtuoso. He sang in my personal favorite band, um, Iced Earth, who he actually sings on my favorite album. It's called The Glorious Burden. And that's a, an album that's all about, like, military history. And it's I, – I feel like he is at the top of his game vocally and songwriting-wise. It's just an incredible album. But, um, yeah, and then what else has he done? He sang in Dio Disciples, which after Ronnie James Dio died, Tim Owens uh, basically took up singing duties in the band and then they toured all over the, the world – um, as Dio disciples and, um, he doesn't do that anymore. I think he's focusing back on his solo stuff now. And from what I understand, the, the, the long designed, um, album cover 
for the next Beyond Fear, which has been done for five or six years now, will probably see the light of day this year or next year. Um, and I, I did that too. And hopefully that comes out this year. And for the, the work that you did complete, has been published, you can go on iTunes, type in Ripper Owens, pull it up, play my game. The artwork that you see is our very own Image Matt Casal. So everybody out there, if you want to see what Matt's really made of and what he's all about, Ripper Owens, play my game. Matt did the artwork for that album. Well done, sir. Thank you. Sorry to commandeer the podcast. No, that's, all, that's all right. We're about flowing, free-form conversation. It is Saturday night. And that's where it went. And I think that that's a pretty worthy thing for you to talk about. It's not every day that somebody can go in to iTunes, type up a famous artist, somebody that you admired yeah. and have done the artwork for it. People can go and check out. So, Well, one other thing that I will say, um, if, if you feel like maybe you've heard of him before, his story was the basis for the film – Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg and Jennifer Aniston. Now, they took a ton of liberty. Supposedly, um, Judas Priest was going to work very closely with the filmmakers, but there were a couple things Judas Priest was really uncomfortable with, and they pulled out. And then after that, then the movie makers just completely went off and did their own thing. And it's kind of a shame because I think if Judas Priest would have just been like, oh, okay, you can change this or change that, that would have been fine. But... Uh, Ultimately, they pulled away and then they made kind of a, a really outlandish version of what happened. But, like, some of the key points were, were accurate. Like, in the movie, Mark Wahlberg's character sings, like, a line of a song. And then they interrupt him and they tell him, you got the gig. Supposedly, that happened in real life. Um, the thing that Tim Owen said that he hated the most about the movie was that they made him from Pittsburgh – because he's a, an Akron, Cleveland guy. And um, he's like, that was the one thing I didn't get. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> whenever they do tell the McSaw story and they have us as Cleveland guys, that's going to piss us off. But we're still going to get paid. That's going to piss you off. Because of your that tight Steelers connection you have. You know, that, that whole Pittsburgh thing, I'm proud of it. I don't... If they told the McSoft story Pretend to fly and said I was from San Jose, I'd <laughs> be furious. I don't act like I'm now, from Los Angeles or anything. Now, Paul, uh, who is going to play you in the McSoft movie? Edward Burns. Edward Burns. Hands down. Now, now you always felt you were more of a Paul Rudd guy. Um, Paul Rudd I could think, pull it off. I think Paul Rudd would do a good job with my personality, but I yeah. don't just like Ed Burns. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very similar, Ed Burns and myself. So, that's... They got Ed Burns, I'd be alright with that. But Ed Burns is always so serious yeah. in every role that I see. Could he in. Could he pull off the, the Paul McGinty uh, personality? I'm not, I'm not sure. I think it's, it's in Paul Rudd's natural wheelhouse. Yeah. Maybe not so much Ed Burns. Right. So, and then for Ian, who's going to play Ian in the Mixos well, movie? Well, Diggs. Of course. <laughs> Tate Diggs. No, I don't know. I really don't know any actor that has any similar... Any black actors? Mm, uh, no, Mike no. Tomlin. No, yeah, he's, he's pretty good, right? Omar Epps. Now, I don't know, man. We talk about this all the time. Who would play you in a movie? I have no idea. I have no idea. Does Omar... 
Is Omar Epps capable of comedy, though? Because every time I see Omar Epps, he's always so serious. Yeah, I don't think he really looks like me either. I don't think I look like Mike Tomlin all that much. I just think you look kind of like Mike Tomlin. Yeah. Your hair kind of... Yeah. A lighter, yeah, <laughs> a lighter, a lighter Mike like Mike Tomlin light. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe not so much so much Omar Epps, but yeah. I do think Dulé Hill could do a good Ian Sharpling. Yeah. Yeah. Fans, go to Facebook really, page. Who would play really Ian? In the... You don't look alike, but... I think he could he could pull off that soft swagger. Now, I don't think that I'm going to be in the beginning of the movie, but clearly I'm going to show up halfway through. Um, and you need a cameo. Oh, I'd like to think I'm more than a cameo. Before the big introduction in the sequel. Oh, okay. So I'm like the villain in the second one. The, <laughs> the villain. I'm like what the Silver Surfer was in the second Fantastic Four movie. Right? I would never insult you like that. Silver Surfer was like the coolest part of that. He movie. He was the coolest part, but that was a shitty movie. So you're saying McSauce is a shitty Fantastic Four sequel? No, I'm just saying that if I did make my appearance, I would be the you know the star of the second one. That's quite possible. Would you, would you you'd probably be the Quicksilver? Yeah, they, but he would be in it more often. More than Quicksilver. Who would play you? I mean, Michael Sarah. Michael Sarah. <laughs> With dyed jet black hair. <laughs> Spike died. What about. Oh, what was his name? I can't. Paul Charlie Day. Is it Charlie Day? It is who would play Matt Cassell? Not. Yeah. Not, Not Freddie Rodriguez. Rodriguez. No, I, I I would go Charlie Day. No, I kind of like Freddie Rodriguez. He's the guy in the Lady in the Water with the big arm, right? Yeah, right. yeah. Freddie Rodriguez looks more like Matt, but I think Charlie Day could really channel Matt's essence. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think Michael Sarah's got him. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I'm how- fine with Charlie Day or Freddie Rodriguez. Not Michael Sarah. <laughs> I don't know how we got so far off what we were going to talk about, but... But, speaking of casting... Let's bring it all back to casting. <laughs> uh, and I don't I don't know how this particular casting escaped our... Uh, escaped the McSauce movie podcast. The Watch for as long as it did. Uh, but weeks ago, uh, Marvel announced that they cast... Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock in the Netflix Daredevil series. Tell us about Charlie Cox. Charlie Cox was in Stardust. That's the extent of knowledge I have about Charlie Cox. Did you see Stardust? Yes. Did you like it? I did. I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Uh-huh. And but I, the whole time I was watching it, I was I was so um I was distracted by how hot I thought What's her face was is the main girl. Claire Danes. Claire Danes, yeah. Uh, and I'm not. A she kind of never I'm looked a, better, huh? I'm not a blonde guy. Like I like dark hair, dark features, but something about Claire Danes in that movie. Every time she was on screen, I was just transfixed. Mm-hmm. But um, I think Charlie Cox did a really good job in that kind of weird fantasy comedy. I don't know how that's going to translate to Daredevil, which should be. Uh, you know, grounded and kind of serious, uh, but he's done other stuff that I haven't seen. Maybe he's more serious than that other stuff. You know, speaking of uh, Stardust, I was at Barnes and Noble 
this week, and they had, and I think they had an end cap with uh, Neil Gaiman books all over it. Everything from the Graveyard book to American Gods and everything in between. And the reason why I think they had an end cap was because I think there was some kind of milestone, like some kind of 20th anniversary of his writing, you know, being on the scene or whatever. But all of his books have like these redesigned covers. So it looks like one cohesive kind of collection. And um, I have always been fascinated to check out Neil Gaiman writing. I've read a little bit here and there. I read a little bit of Stardust. I read a little bit of Neverwhere. I read a little bit of some of his stuff on Batman. Nothing really ever grabbed me. Uh, but I don't think I've read enough to know. But I just get this vibe that he's not for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I hate to judge a book by its cover. Well, if you've read a little bit of all those, you took a sampling. I it's not judging so. it by its cover. You you read it. You, right. you checked it out. But the accolades that he gets makes me want to just devour something. But I feel like any time I kind of start to try to, the just kind of like the the interest isn't isn't there. I feel I, I I feel the same way. He gets tons and tons of accolades, and I've read a pretty good smattering of his stuff, but nothing is... I've never been like, oh my god, that was great. Now, I think someone you could maybe compare him to, especially since, you know, maybe just the comic work, is Alan Moore. Because they're both (laughs) contemporary writers that get so so many accolades. Um, But I've read a bunch of Alan Moore, and I've been like, holy shit, this is really fucking good. But all the Neil Gaiman stuff I've read, I've yeah, kind of been like, this is a little weird. Only Neil Gaiman stuff that I ever really enjoyed, and I enjoyed it a lot, was the the Eternals that reimagined oh, yeah. Jack right. Kirby, New Gods, but and, Marvel uh, with the, the Celestials. Don Romina Jr. did that artwork. It was a really great reimagining of that universe that Jack Kirby came up with in like the 60s I, or 70s. I, I forgot about those. That's the I, only I thing that I've owned. That's the only that's thing it. that I really, that I've read that I liked. You didn't I, read, I thought you um, read Sandman. I read a little bit of Sandman, but I didn't really like it. Oh, I yeah. thought you did. No, no. Oh, okay. I didn't really like it. Yeah, I've read a couple <laughs> death trades of his. I read Neverwhere, That Eternals Run, the... What Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, Batman Story. Oh, that's not a smattering. You've read Neil Gaiman. But in the breadth of his work, I mean, that is a a smattering. I haven't read any of the Sandman proper stuff. Yeah, but still. I didn't read Stardust or any other novels that he has. Um, But all the stuff that I've read, I I leave and I'm like, eh, was okay. Just kind of underwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. I think you made the comparison to Alan Moore. Alan Moore, though, will, will sink his teeth into superhero stuff. All the time. Whereas Gaiman, it's very rare that he touches a superhero property. The only thing that's popping to mind right now is his stuff on Batman, which was pretty short-lived. I thought it was just that one... There's two issues, right? two-part story. And that's it? Yeah, whatever happened to the Cape Crusader. Yeah, it was before they kicked off the New 52. Yeah, and I read it, and I was like, what the fuck is this? Didn't it... And that, felt didn't, like, that didn't leave me like, well, that was okay. That left me pissed because I was like, this was bullshit. Yeah, I didn't get it. I, I don't remember being pissed, but I remember not liking it. But that, you know what it felt like? Grant Morrison weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, he doesn't get as 
crazy as Morrison does. So I feel like when I read Neil Gaiman, I'm not confused or upset with him. <laughs> what can happen with Grant Morrison. Although Grant Morrison also has the, for me at least, I know you guys disagree. For me, Grant Morrison has the potential, the boo or bust, where he can hit something that I absolutely love and will rave about for years and years and years. We three, man, a book about robotic dogs, rabbits, and cats. That book is amazing. I'll recommend that to anybody. Yeah, but that, but there are a lot of other things that he's written that I've been like, that is dog shit. But the, whatever happened to the Cape Crusader issues did leave me with that confused Grant Morrison, you know, feeling like I was like, what the fuck did I just read? Because right. whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is a really concise story. Like you get it, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Everything all wraps up. It's a, just a really good classic Superman story. So I'm like, all right, you're getting one of the best writers to write the Batman analog for this story. Uh, I think and Andy Kubert, sometimes sketchy, great, sometimes bad artist. But at that okay. point, I think he was on a good roll. Yeah, he, he he was he was he was on a good roll. Uh, no, and no, Andy is the one I like. Adam's the one. Adam did uh, Wolverine. Origin. Andy or, did Batman. Is that right? Andy did Batman with Grant Morrison. Yeah, son Andy's, of Batman. Andy's son. the yes. one I like. So I was like, Andy right. also did Ultimate Damien, right? I think he did. Uh, wait, who did Damien, son of Batman? Yeah, Adam is the one that did. The, Can't there just be one fucking Kubert? Uh, Adam Kubert did the Jeff Johns stuff where they introduced Jonathan Kent, Superman's son from the Phantom Zone. Okay. Which was bad. Andy did whatever happened to the Cape Crusader. And it was, like, the artwork's good. And I was, I was excited going into it. I was like, all right, really good Batman story. That's what's supposed to be the last Batman story. And then I read it, and I was like, I don't get it. And I felt like I was, I felt like I was stupid. Like I was missing something. That's like, how Batman R.I.P. made me feel. It made me feel like I was retarded. And I didn't understand... <laughs> Read comic books, Grant Morrison. I feel like Grant Morrison apologists will tell you that you just can't think on his his plane, his level of of just genius. You know, it's it's too beyond you. And I, I even think they would say it's even too beyond me. And that's how they justify not understanding what they supposedly like. I just think that we call it as it is. Um, you know, you said that for you, Ian, that it's either, you know, boom or bust, but even Paul and I feel like we have liked some Grant Morrison stuff, but probably less than you have. Um, probably. He, what, what are some Grant Morrison works that you guys like? Well, we mentioned it, we mentioned it on the last podcast, actually, the first few issues of, um, Action Comics when that relaunched yeah, on the New 52. Uh, there was another one that... I actually thought when he first started Justice League, it was pretty good. Um, All that Rock of Ages stuff. And his, like JLA stuff his JLA stuff. JLA, really I'm sorry. Because it, it, doesn't get, it doesn't get too With crazy. Howard Porter on the I artwork. have a hard time with Howard Porter's artwork, so I had a difficult time with those books. And I read them years and years. I read them in like 2008, 2009. I borrowed them from Paul, and I read them later... And I really couldn't go backwards in time and enjoy them. Yeah. I think I read them at the time, and, mm -hmm. and I really didn't know DC characters, especially when it had come out. But I thought it was pretty good, and I thought the art was okay. But 
I thought the story was pretty decent, but uh, I think I read the second run, the second, like, six-issue arc, and that I didn't like as much, so I was already out by then. But um, I'm trying to think what other Grant Morrison stuff was pretty decent. All-Star Superman is one that I'll point to all the time as um, one of my that. favorite Superman stories. Um, I really enjoyed it. I know some people don't. Um, I, I think that he did a really good job. And some of the things that we've been talking about tonight, the telling like the last story, um, they, Superman was dying and he was trying to tell a story about him wrapping up all of his, um, all the loose ends that he had in his world. And that was in All-Star Superman? Yeah, yeah. He was That's dying was. from radiation from the sun. So did they do his origin in All-Star Superman? No, it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was almost like a continuing continuation of whatever was going in, on in Superman at that point, but it was its own universe. So, so Superman it, had, it, had these adventures and, and ran into villains and heroes that he had already had the same kind of relationships before, but it was just telling, like, sort of like, hey, I'm dying. These are the things that I would like to take care of before I die. I need to sit down and read those all in one sitting because I didn't like them when I read them. I don't know if it was Frank Quitley's art or just the wackiness of those books, but... It has that wacky 60s sci-fi vibe. One of Grant Morrison's things that he does... Shit is crazy. ...is that he bring, he makes everything count. And in a way, I can respect that. He makes all the crazy stuff. There's Crypto the Dog is yeah. in there and all, all the you know Pocket Universe, all that crazy stuff. They're all in his works, just like what he did with Batman to maybe lesser of a successful extent where he brought in Batmite and what's that crazy purple and red Batman? Batman of Zur and R. Sweet Jesus. Holy shit. But, yeah, Grant Morrison includes everything. So, I mean, in a way, I, I applaud it, but sometimes it just doesn't work. Everything's not meant to be. <laughs> right, like... <laughs> I don't know. I, the crypto, the dog, just seems like probably not the best, the best thing to, you know, put in modern comics. But whatever. I don't know so, if I'll ever read it. Charlie Cox is Matt Murdock in Netflix Daredevil. There you go. There you go. Do any of us have strong feelings about Charlie Cox, one way or the other? Now, is he related to Andy Dick? Oh, Matt. Should I have saved that for the end? Yes. Yes, he should have. Um, I don't think there's a relation. Uh, Marion uh, Butts? No, no. How do you guys feel about Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock? I have zero feelings about this. Yeah. I don't know anything about him. He doesn't really look like the Matt Murdock that we know, but I'm sure that can be worked around. Matt, Charlie Cox doesn't have red hair. How do you feel about that since Matt Murdock traditionally has red hair? Um, I think he should have red hair. I think that they'll, they're wise to dye it. Um, but we will see. I, yeah, he really doesn't appear to look like uh, the Matt Murdock that, that I would think would – you know, leap to life from the pages of the Daredevil comic book. But in general, I am not nearly as amped for this TV show as 
I would be if it was a Daredevil film. Um, we don't cover that. We, we don't have to cover it further, <laughs> but uh, just based on what they're doing, the direction they're going with it, I'm already like less invested in it anyway. So, whatever. yeah, I, I've never seen this dude in anything. Never heard of his name until this recent casting. So I have zero feelings on this. Yeah, I've only seen him in Starlight, and Starlight is an adventure comedy. Like, there's not a whole lot of... It's not really heavy or serious like I would expect Daredevil to be. So, I don't know what this kid's capable of from an acting perspective. Um, and visually, I feel the same way I do about him as I do about Grant Gustin being The Flash. He doesn't need to be blonde if you're going to be Barry Allen, but I kind of want him to be. So, and I don't want that forced red hair like Ben Affleck had because it just looked so unnatural. Yeah. And I don't know if Charlie Cox can pull off dyed red hair. Yeah, he doesn't have that like <clears throat> complexion really to yeah, to look like But when you get down to it, how many great red-haired actors are there? Domino Gleason. Would you would you rather them cast a blonde guy? Because I think if you get a blonde guy with those lighter features, you're probably gonna have an easier time dyeing his hair red. Um Yeah, maybe. Um but maybe he blew them away in his audition and maybe he is the right guy to be Daredevil. Um You know, I'm gonna I'm going to reserve some judgment until I see maybe some production stills, you know, see what they're actually going to do to his hair, um, see what he looks like in the costume. But for now, eh, whatever. This doesn't really do anything for my needle. It doesn't make it point one way or the other. Uh, what about uh, Vincent D'Onofrio as the kingpin? Now, Vincent D'Onofrio, I didn't recognize the name, but I recognized the face. That's Private Pile from... Full Metal Jacket. Now, I know that he also had a role on one of those Law & Order shows or something uh, as a detective, right? Yes. I, I, I'm willing to bet he's most famously known as um, the Law & Order guy. You think so? As Detective Robert Gorin on Criminal Intent. Okay. Now, I always knew him from Full Metal Jacket. Um, he has a long resume. Yeah, he's well, he's been actually in, now that I look at it, actor as an actor, it's not as big as I thought it was. Um, I feel like I've seen him in a bunch of things, but nothing's coming to mind. But he seems like he could be a, a good kingpin. You know, you shave his head. I've seen him with a shaved head. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's a little on the small side Is to he? be the the great big kingpin. He might be another teeny tiny kingpin. Um, now I know when we did our Daredevil audio commentary, we suggested that maybe some kind of enhancement, like with CGI, might make well, sense. Vincent D'Onofrio is six four. Right, is he really that tall. But the the comic book kingpin is abnormally larger than a regular human being. There, there's something unnatural about the kingpin's size, whether it's his actual width or it's his insanely large hands, whatever. What's what's this actor's name again? Vincent D'Onofrio. D- Mr. D'Onofrio. I was going to call him D'Uniforio. 
<laughs> that's why we don't let you say names until we do. <laughs> no, actually, that's why you make me say them first. But, <laughs> but so, I think that um, he still doesn't have that insanely larger kind of physique that, that the kingpin kind of the unnaturally large Hulk physique. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, Lou Ferrigno, you're not the Hulk. Because the Hulk is unnaturally large. Just like the Kingpin is unnaturally large. Even in uh, the Ultimate comics, where they kind of scale him down a little bit, he's still gigantic. He's like Andre the Giant size. Yeah, I... I know that they probably wanted to feel more realistic, and maybe they're afraid that it would look ridiculous. But you know, look at like Hagrid in the Harry Potter movies. Ian, I know you can tune out, but what they did with him, <sighs> and you know, using different methods like the whole like Lord of the Rings forced perspective, or just using CGI to make him bigger in scenes. I think that's where you can go, and it won't feel that awkward or awkward at all. And, and I think the fanboys out there will love it. Is there a lo- big outcry that you know everything? Michael Clark Duncan was so his his scale was so off and so wrong for the part of the kingpin, and or have have people made that? clear like that they want a bigger kingpin i don't know i i don't i don't think that (laughs) i didn't know what that was for a second (laughs) those are the cats are they fighting sounds like it sounds like there's some business in by the food tray ah I don't know if people are making a big deal out of uh, the fact that Kingpin was misproportioned based on his comic book, you know, uh, look. But Mm -hmm. I know I made a big deal out of it when we did the podcast. And again, I don't know how many times I can say it. Just make it look like the fucking book. Why is it? it? There's no reason with today's technology and today's, you know... With our abilities, given you know the, the means that we have today, why you can't make it look like the book? It looks like it looks in the book for a reason. It, it hasn't changed. You know, if it was ridiculous, it would have changed. Just translate I think, it. I think Vincent D'Onofrio will look as close as it can to the book without using CGI or practical effects. I think he's going to be bald. I think they're going to put him in the classic white suit that he's usually in. Yeah, but I don't. I don't know what the budget for a Netflix series like this looks like. So who knows what they're going to be able to do. Maybe they couldn't offer up the CG budget to make him gigantic. Yeah, I don't know. But it is Daredevil, and maybe you're not really going to get any other CG effects anywhere else. So maybe they will be able to pull it off. Who knows? Um, I'll probably yeah, feel a lot... Of the, Daredevil's still... I mean... We're going to have to see some Spider-Man, like, flipping through the city effects. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you could be right. Like, last time I checked, Charlie Cox wasn't the parkour champion of the world. That's true. Although you may get a more Batman, Christopher Nolan-esque kind of treatment, even though Daredevil does have superpowers. Um, 
I think you're going to be closer to that actually in, than you will the Andrew Garfield web slinging right, Spider Man. Right. Ian, I agree. Okay, because yep. we stopped talking about Harry Potter a little bit ago. No, I was waiting for that even. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just don't don't have much to add right now. Nothing about Vincent Diana Frofro. Diana Frofro. <laughs> Diana Frofro. Are you upset that they're making him white again? No, I felt the that was the one thing that people were pissed about that I understood was the uh, skin tone. So Laddie's a white guy now. I mean, I think what they decided to do at that at the time was find the biggest actor that they could find, and well, he's a black guy. Well, who cares? He's gigantic. This is the biggest guy that we can find. And he was he played the part well. I mean, I think that's something that gets lost. It was a good thing. See, I never. I think the problem I had with Michael Clark Duncan is I never bought him as a bad guy. I've seen him in enough stuff where he's like just a big, lovable teddy bear. He's never been threatening to me. But when I see Vincent D'Onofrio, I'm like, I'm not gonna fuck with that guy. So I think like that's where D'Onofrio is gonna have the upper hand in going into this character. Is that he's already a little crazy? Like even in even in Law and Order, he's the good guy. Yeah, I was gonna say, isn't he a he's, hero in that? But he's kind of fucked up. Like, really, you never really know what angle he's gonna come at you with. See, I've never watched enough of him because I feel like when I see him on television or whatever, I just keep flipping. Yeah, until you find a movie. If I even, well, why would I be watching television in the first place? I don't. Maybe I saw just internet still. Yeah, or I, I think that Vincent D'Onofrio has a more threatening presence than Michael Clark Duncan. So I'm, I'm a big fan of this casting. I think this was this was really great. Yeah, and not having real emotional ties to to Daredevil, I'm not going to be super critical yeah. of it. But um, I'm pretty happy with both of these castings. I think they could have done worse than Charlie Cox, but D'Onofrio, good stuff. Could have been. Michael Sarah, Daredevil. Could have been, been amazing. Could have been. We, well, we're essentially getting Michael Sarah light as Lex Luthor, so. <laughs> you know, we'll see how that works. Uh, what a shame. Speaking of Lex Luthor, uh, a rumored list of DC's movie schedule for the next four years uh, popped up online, and it's pretty ambitious. Um, I don't think there is any way half of these movies get done or made. Like, I mean, if they do, great, but... Well, we have confirmation that at least two of these movies are in production. We do? Batman v Superman and Sandman are both being written by David... I hate ladies, Goyer. <laughs> I hate ladies I love and Martians. Sl- I love sluts. <laughs> Martians are boring. Good old David Goyer. I also love sluts. That dude's getting the shit kicked out. So here's here's how this is breaking down: Batman, Superman, in, two, in sixteen, in May two thousand sixteen, Shazam in July two thousand sixteen, Sandman in Christmas two thousand sixteen, then a straight up Justice League movie in twenty seventeen, followed by Wonder Woman in July two thousand seventeen. And then a Flash and Green Lantern team up for Christmas 2017. And then Man of Steel 2 in 2018. Is who is anyone even going to care 
about superheroes in 2018. <laughs> and like I feel this, I feel the same way about this as I do about Marvel because Marvel released dates for potential movies that go all the way up to like 2020. I have more confidence in Marvel because yeah, they've done it in the past. I'm pretty sure they can do it again. I agree, and I have confidence that Marvel will hit that schedule. They know what they want to do. They are a well-oiled machine. But like six years from now, I'm like that's pretty ambitious planning all the way out to them based on like like I know we we talked with uh, with Grimace on a fireside chat about the. Superhero bubble bursting. Twenty eighteen is only four years from now, right? But Marvel has plans. Oh, we're going we're up to twenty twenty. Okay, but even if we just stop at two thousand eighteen, like I still feel four years <laughs> to be rolling all this out. It, it still feels really ambitious to me. You know what, Mike? Like the first thing that I noticed looking at this list, where's the Batman movie? They're going to introduce Batman in a in a ensemble cast movie bring him back in another ensemble cast in 2017 but he never gets his own movie in the next four years it seems silly especially with the the big name that is ben affleck being cast exactly you would think that 2017 would be a natural fit for a batman movie right so what they're gonna do all these and then they're gonna do batman in 2019 maybe the way that i feel about this and i think dc has come out almost said maybe not in these words but each movie is like its own thing, and we're going to we'll, – we'll, there's no big grand plan. We're just going to take each movie as it comes and then build on that. That seems kind of silly to do it that way. I mean, there should be a more fluid plan for how you're going to structure your universe. Really? I don't think that it makes sense to go – what would make sense? Batman v Superman, then go into Wonder Woman, then from there go into Batman, I think. Because you'll have people waiting for a Batman movie, I think, after, you know, you'll give them something else, Wonder Woman, maybe even have a Batman cameo, yeah. something like that, yeah. um, and then give them the Batman movie that they've been waiting for since Batman v Superman. Well, Shazam and Sandman seem to really stand out on their own, but... I wouldn't be surprised to see Batman in any of these other movies. I suppose. Man of Steel 2 could be world's finest. Yeah. Because at the... Oh, granted, my I would love to see the animated series World's Finest turned into a huge feature film. But in the beginning of World's Finest, those guys are buddies. They're friends with each other. They're, they're familiar with each other. So by the time Man of Steel 2 rolls around... I mean, that could be a very natural spot to do a World's Finest type movie. Now, this feels like, to me, they if this was Marvel Studios, they came out and they're like, we're going to do Avengers 2, and then after that, we're going to do Sleepwalker and Darkhawk followed by <laughs> Deathlock. Like, that's it, it, these don't make sense. Yeah, but I don't think... You know, Marvel has... All of Marvel's movies are built around the same the same universe. Everything happens in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't think Shazam or Sandman will take place in the DC Universe. I think Shazam is going to be its own thing, and I think it's going to be geared more toward kids. I don't think it's going to be a kid's movie, but I think it's going to be more like a Jurassic Park. Does that make sense? No. No. 
Like, oh. Can I can I come help you out? Yes, huh? please. I think that Shazam is going to maybe have more of a Marvel movie vibe to it, whereas the Batman v Superman and, and Justice League, Wonder Woman, Man of Steel 2 are all going to kind of maintain that whole kind of more serious tone that they set with Man Thank of Steel. Thank you very much, Matt. That's exactly what I was trying to... Or Jurassic Park. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what like, I was trying to say. Wait a second. Velociraptors <laughs> and The Rock? <laughs> it's going to be like Iron Man. Fun and funny. What they need to do... More, probably more like Iron Man 3, which was funny and fun. What they need to do is take the Jeff Johns Shazam, drawn by Gary Frank, and just translate that. It was so good. I agree. So, so good. Um, <laughs> if they do that, they might have the best superhero movie yet. Because I, I can't imagine them doing anything but that. It... It was so well received. It's a great story. People can relate so to good. it. Diversity. Everybody loves that. Oh, yeah, that. they had that forced diversity that Paul was like, eh. Forced. That's it how, was pretty forced. That's yeah. how foster the, families are built. The affirmative action of comic book stories. Jesus, <laughs> oh, I don't need everyone to be white, but sometimes it's real natural and organic. To just have all white. Times, all whiteies. No. Sometimes the diversity is real natural and organic. Ah. And other times... It's like whenever it's like that homeless dude can be black, <laughs> that hooker can be Mexican. Yeah. So you're on the same well, page. I know. But, and that white guy is a banker. Yeah. But that Jeff Johns story, I mean, come on. like Pure nerds. The, the, the Vasquez couple who adopt all these kids... It's like they went to the supermarket of nationalities and were like, all right, we need a white kid, a cripple, a girl, an Asian, a Latino, and a black. One of each. You mean, like, there couldn't be, like, two black kids or, like, you know, two Latino kids? I mean, they, Jeff Johns just fucking, he was like, all right, what are your, dem- what are your demographics? Let's Boom. hit them all. Bam, 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 bam. I'm like, Maybe that's on. the way Gary Frank drew it. Maybe Jeff Johns didn't say I need a black girl. I need a Asian boy. I need a cripple. Gary no, Frank was you just pick like, the color with the cripple. No, it's it's <laughs> and it it's smart. I mean, that's you're hitting all the fucking demographics. Who out. cares? It you're was just the foster kids. You're bringing foster families as white blonde Nazis. It doesn't. It doesn't what? Well, you're like, well, I mean, it make it was a good idea. So uh, you have all the demographics. Here, it makes sense, and then you're like, but I don't like it. Yeah, it makes sense for marketing and yeah. selling a story and selling the movie. Yeah, but it's, how many foster it's families do you natural. know? How many do you know? You don't know any. One, one. I don't know any. One of each nationality. I know. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and that's how they do it. Yeah, but they have like a ton of black kids. Do they have a ton? If, if, sh- if the sh- Vasquez's had, like, all black foster kids, <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, that's cool. I get it. But they have one of each nationality. Maybe that's what but they Pitt, want. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie mixed then it up. Then they're fucked up. They have, for like, not Vietnamese anyone kids. and being like, sorry, we've already got a Chinese kid. Maybe the white kids were all bought out already. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they came to the kid store late. 
Or maybe they came early, and that's the good crop. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't have a foster family. Neither do you. I just didn't, like, care. Like, I was enjoying the story. I, I never was like, wait, pause. It never be out. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? That I never happened. Paul whipping the comic across, <laughs> across the screen. We're like, fuck you. It was the one of each nature of it. It was they. Jeff Jones clearly went out. It would have made in. you oh, when you're if there happened. were two Asian girls. That would have made you. That you'd been fine. They're like, all right, well, that's natural. Well, yeah, there's you know? two here. Is yeah, there's two, so it's and not perfect. The current, balance. the current temperature of the McSauce podcast is Paul's a racist. No, like what? Like if if they were all black, all Asian, half black, half Asian, whatever, fine. But the the fact that you get one of each demographic carefully planned out is what made me roll my eyes. Like, come on. When you eat M&M's and you get a pile of M&M's, right, and you have like three reds, two browns, a couple blues, four greens, don't you kind of like eat just enough so you just have one color of each one left white. over? I eat all the colors till I have only the white ones left. <laughs> <laughs> no, I take all the M&M's and I throw them all in my mouth at the same time. I bet you do. Just like you put all your foster kids in your in mouth, mouth and then eat them all at the same time. <laughs> That's why I don't have foster kids, because I'd all be Latino girls and I'd go to jail. <laughs> or nothing if not honest on the McSauce comic book podcast. Here we go. Those are M&M's, folks. I can't wait to see this Shazam movie Because <laughs> I want to sit in the theater... Beside Paul as he flips the it's, fuck out at the foster it's family. It's called Shazam and the White M&M's. <laughs> oh, shit. So, is anybody else surprised that the Wonder Woman movie is going to take so goddamn long to make, if they make it at all? Well, I don't think any of these are that far out. Like I said, they're only four years, so Wonder Woman's three years away. That's not bad. I, I, I don't know. It feels long to me, but for Wonder Woman, such a big name to follow, Shazam, Sandman, it feels like they're shoehorning Shazam and Sandman in there. Like, look how crazy and different we are. Well, Shazam, the, the Jeff Johns book is a great idea for Shazam. I mean... Like Minus this, the foster kids, clearly. Right. But this movie has the potential to be huge. Like, Invisibles, or Invisibles? Invincible. Invincible's huge. Like Invisibles has, is that Grant Morrison stuff from the eighties that I'm sure you guys hate. And like like Matt, you know, so eloquently stated, you know, the Man of Steel is pretty dark, and Batman Superman is going to be. Pretty oh yeah, dark. Shazam's not like Jurassic Park. That was my eloquence, right? But but yeah, like like Matt said, I think Shazam's going to be able to come out and really hit this broad audience. So I don't think that's so much of a shoehorn. I think the Sandman movie is more of a shoehorn. Actually, like, who who wants that? A lot of people want. I think that maybe be it's cool. just not people in this room, but a lot of I people would fly. I think it'll that. be cool. But traditionally, Sandman is a book that only works as a comic book because it's so fucking out there that you can only get across certain ideas in comic book form. Like it, like a lot of people say about 
Sandman like they do about Watchmen that it just does, it's not going to translate properly. Yeah, I think you might be right there. It might even be harder than to translate than Watchmen because at least Watchmen was a superhero noir piece where you can kind of take those elements and superhero movies work, crime noir works, you mash them up together and you kind of have a movie with elements that people are familiar with. Sandman is a totally different animal. I don't even know what Sandman is about, really. And I've read Sandman. I have no idea. The one that that really kind of throws me off is the way that they've positioned Wonder Woman. Two months after the Justice League movie, I feel like that's not a very good plan. I feel like they would be better off if they flip-flopped those two films. Or... You know, put Sandman and flip-flop Sandman and Wonder Woman or something like that. I just feel like you can't come out with, like... You know, that's like coming out with The Avengers 2 and then Thor The Dark World. Like, two months later. Or Scarlet... Or, not Scarlet Witch. Black Widow. Or, yeah, or the Black Widow movie... Two months later, nobody's going to care. I mean, they will. It's too big of a movie to, you know, Justice League is so gigantic, such a blockbuster. Right. And then it's like, itty-bitty Wonder Woman movie. Right, yeah. It's just, and, and, I mean, Wonder Woman's a bigger deal than the Black Widow, yeah. But still, I feel like they should position Wonder Woman as the big movie of its summer for for DC rather than, because it looks like... they're going to go, May is their heavy hitter, July is more of like kind of second level. It still feels like um, like one, like they're afraid of the Wonder Woman movie. Like they're afraid of this character. Like they don't know what to do with her. They have no idea how she's going to fit into their universe. Half the time they don't know how to write her in their comic book, much less a movie. They're afraid of this movie. And... and I don't know why they don't just get somebody that's that's good at I don't creating know why female characters. They don't just give the Wonder Woman license to Marvel because we already have two great Wonder Woman movies out by now. You know, you know the guys at Marvel are, are like, what the fuck are they doing with this character? Like, we would hook this up, but DC is just a mess. Yeah, it's too bad Marvel doesn't have the rights to everything. <clears throat> But if they didn't have competition, then maybe their movies wouldn't be as good as they are now. Maybe. I, I would let Marvel make these DC movies. At yeah. this point, I'm like, just, you know, DC comic books brought to you by Marvel Comics. Superman! <laughs> yeah, I mean, do it, because Marvel's... Flipping Marvel. pages, and it's still red, but there's like DC. Right? <laughs> Marvel's getting it done. They, they know how to get it done. You they have that movies. little faith in this company. You love Man of Steel. DC, if if they really make these this string of movies here, they might get their shit together and have their own tone that is separate from Marvel. It's very ambitious to have these movies hit. You know, three movies in 2006, 16, three movies in 2017 for a... Uh, a production company that hasn't, you know, put out more than one every five years. Yeah, but, I mean, come on. This is Warner Brothers. They have the backing. These movies are licenses to print money. Like, they they just make shitloads of money. Even the, you know, ones that are deemed kind of failure. Like, Mm Spider-Man was considered some kind of failure. But it still made hundreds of millions of dollars. it, It doesn't matter what the movie's about. 
just the fact that it's called Batman vs. Superman, that's going to... I mean, that, that opening weekend is going to be enormous. That guarantees $90 million right there. That name right there. Right. You put an S in that ver- that V right there, an S just right the after that, that, $10 million more million right there. Just the fact that you're going to get to see Batman and Superman fight on the big screen. I mean, that's a huge opening weekend. doesn't matter if it bombs the next weekend, yeah. which it's more than likely going to do, as we've learned. Yeah, but, that's I mean, true. That's a huge opening weekend for that movie, and that's more than enough to you know have them make a second one. So it seems like out of these, this uh, list of movies, Shazam is the one that everybody seems to be most excited about. It's, it's sort of strange to me, but yeah. Well, the source material is fantastic, especially if they adhere to the Jeff Johns kind of reboot of the character. And if... I mean... He's like a Superman type of character. It's going to appeal to all ages. Uh, I think the whole magic angle with the the wizard and everything is is really interesting. I just can't see and your main and your main protagonist is a kid, which we haven't seen in superhero movies right. since we've entered the golden age of superhero movies. Right, and I think I think that's what's gonna. That's what's going to really gear it toward a lot of kids really loving that movie, if it's good. <clears throat> so, uh, Flash Green Lantern team-up, Christmas 2017. That seems really fucking weird, doesn't it? Super weird. Uh, I watched Green Lantern the other day, and man, you guys were really right with uh, some of the criticism you had about Hector Hammond. He was super, super odd. Um, off-putting, even, with like the way that he was like screaming and moaning half of the time. Yeah, yeah. It was really strange. And <laughs> I don't know how I missed that the first time. It doesn't look like Ryan Reynolds is going to come back. And uh, I read some, re- some report a couple of days ago that said they already have the Flash. I assume that means Grant Gustin from the Flash TV series. But I can't imagine that's that's true. But no movie casting has been announced for that character. But and, you know, I, I, why would they double dip like that? And this is all this is all rumor. Yeah, yeah. What, I wanted to ask: Where does this list come from? Who leaked it or provided um, it? It comes from a girl named Nikki Fink, who had, I guess, inside DC sources. And she's launching her... She worked for Deadline, but now she's launching her own site. And this was, like, the big... The big news that, like, she launched the site with. Okay. So it's... It's seen... And from the different articles I've read on new, on uh, Newsarama and comic book resources, it sounds like she kind of knows her shit. Okay. Like, this is probably going to be a big announcement from Comic-Con that she kind of ruined for Warner Brothers. But... Yeah, as long as your little website gets all the problems. But, pub. It, has, it, has but it also gets people talking, and I, I think it'll still have an impact whenever DC comes out and says, this is what we're doing. Yeah, and What it, DC it, should do if they really want to like make it their own, they should be like, yeah, that's true. Oh, by the way, Batman's coming out in 2017 or 2018, whatever. Yeah, so I, you know, while it is a rumor, I think there is um, some credence to it. Cool. Paul, what else do you want to talk about tonight? Now, why don't we talk about what you've been reading? You asking me what I've been reading? What have you been reading, Matt? 
Well, uh, I only got my Wednesday comics today on Saturday. Um, I was kind of holding out to go to the comic book store. I went to uh, the lovely Arkham gift shop in, I believe it's Allison Park, Pennsylvania. Um, every uh, every Saturday, um, not every Saturday, one Saturday a month during the summer months. Every day! <laughs> They uh, they do what is called Hot Dog Saturday, where they'll grill up hot dogs out in the parking lot. Um, they have superhero cookies. They've got pasta salad, pop, everything that you could want. Um, well, the pop's 75 cents, but the hot dogs are free. <laughs> and they have great sales throughout the day. And uh, I thought today would be a good day to stop out, get a hot dog, and get my books. So what I read was actually from last week. The book that I wanted to talk about this week. Did you get a hot dog? Yeah, I had one and a half. Yeah. And some pasta salad. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, which was good. But, uh, oh, and I had a Spider-Man cookie. They had cookies, like, that had different heads. They were iced like the superheroes. There was a Spider-Man one. Well, there were many Spider-Man ones. There was <laughs> Spider-Man, Iron Man, Hulk, maybe Captain America. Was it a Peter Parker cookie or a dreaded Miles Morales cookie? Uh, Vanilla or chocolate is the question. <laughs> it was a Peter Parker cookie. Fuck yes, it was. Of course you would say that. They were They were all Peter Parker cookies. But anyway, the book that um, that I read this past week was uh, Big Trouble in Little China, number one, from Boom Studios, which is a comic book about the um, that takes place in the world of Big Trouble in Little China, the movie, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. I set it to DVR for this, for sometime this week, and I will sit down and watch it for the first time. I have yet to watch. Neither, neither have you ever seen it? Little China! You never saw it, Ian. Never saw it. Wow. Um, it's a John Carpenter movie, and it's kind of like an action-adventure kind of thing about a kind of a rough-and-tumble uh, truck driver-type character, uh, Kurt Russell, who... The, the joke is basically he thinks he's the hero, but he's kind of really not. Like, the guy that you... They position as the sidekick of the movie is really the hero, um, but um, Kurt Russell's his character, his name's Jack Burton, really isn't in on the joke. And the movie has all kinds of crazy, like '80s kind of just goofiness. And you know, somebody compared it or kind of made the described it as '70s movie. Uh, Kung Fu movie style meets like 80s action. And I was like, perfect. That's exactly what it is. Um, with a healthy dose of what the fuck. Um, so, I'm excited to finally see it. Yeah, the the comic book picks up literally the moment the movie ends. Um, and the movie kind of ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. So it's kind of cool to, to read it. Um, I want to say that... Yeah, actually, John Carpenter um, contributed to the story. Um, it's his story, and he wrote it with Eric Powell of the Goon fame. Um, Eric Powell is credited as the writer, but John Carpenter 
provided the story with Eric Powell. So uh, the comic book is in good hands. Uh, I think, who does the art on that, Ian? Uh, Brian Chirilla? Brian Chirilla. Now, Paul, pronounce that name correctly. Yeah, I think you got it right, Brian. Whoa, you got one right! Just like the studios, boom. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway... um, Without really getting into it too much, it just kind of picks up where the where the movie left off. And being a big fan of the movie, it's really cool to see something that <clears throat> is tied into the movie because there has never been an official tie-in to the movie since the like ever. This is like the very first thing, so kind of cool. I heard that it's written it's written so closely to the movie that it's. Very easy to hear Kurt Russell's voice when you're reading his dialogue. No no question. It's so good. It's funny, just like the movie. You know, the movie was really cool because it it was... John Carpenter movies were always so, like, kind of serious. I mean, there, there were a lot of satires and everything. And, you know, they had Halloween. That was kind of scary. But, like, there wasn't a whole lot of humor to... John Carpenter movies, and then all of a sudden, this comes out of nowhere, and it's got like, I don't even know if I would call it a scary vibe, but it kind of had some creepy elements to it, but it was so action-packed, it was just so different, like, the closest thing would be like, um, Escape from New York at the time, but that had such a, like, a much more serious kind of vibe to it that so different in Big Trouble in Little China and this was one of my childhood favorite movies back in the 80s and to this day it still resonates with me just flipping through the comic book I mean there's a lot of crazy looking stuff I would be interested to take a look and and check out the movie for the first time so maybe at some point I'll have to DVR it. I would love to watch that movie with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you guys want to watch it together, let me know because it's – I haven't seen See, it in a couple of years. I do not want to watch it with you because I think you would be disappointed and we would get in a fist fight by the time it was over. If it's anything like, Ro- like RoboCop. Because when, yeah. when I watched RoboCop, well, I guess the end of last year, I was um, – I, I wasn't – really happy about it so uh i think maybe i'll watch this by myself (laughs) and temper my criticisms for when it's over but in my history with kurt russell he's never made a bad movie and i don't expect i don't expect to have a big problem with this one like i did robocop and you've talked this one up so i i like big trouble in little china better than robocop however i do love both Ian, what you been reading, buddy? I've been reading Batgirl Year One by Scott Beatty, Chuck Dixon, and Marcos Martin. Now, that is a very... Marcos Martin. Paul was giving you a look like, what the fuck are you reading? Yeah, really? Why are you reading that? It's just a, like a Year One story, man. That's, that's all. When did that it's come out? It's an older book. Looks like it. <laughs> Does it look like it? it or does like it look like... It looks like... It looks very animated series style. 
Like, if you told me that was a Gotham Adventures book, I'd be like, okay. Yeah, I don't think that it looks that old. Um, I think the color palette might be something that you don't like all that no, much. No, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily look old, but it looks like it looks like Gotham Adventures style, which was late or early two thousands, late nineties. Let me take a look and see when this was uh, 2002, so maybe it's right in that time period. It follows the... Yeah. 12 years old. Yeah. But I don't feel that the story is all that world's old. I mean, the artwork is similar to Doctor Strange, The Oath, the same art team that's on that, so it's almost... That was, I mean, a, it's, that was a great looking book. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing here. It's just got, um, you know, a different kind of color palette. It has those pastels that pop out that I know that you don't necessarily like all that much. But it's the story of Barbara Gordon. It follows her initial year when she gets out of college. She's looking for a job. She wants to follow Commissioner Gordon's footsteps, become a police officer. But there are a lot of roadblocks in the way, her father being the main one, not wanting two police officers in the family because it's a dangerous business. So what does she do? She goes into an even more dangerous business, being vigilante. That'll do it. Fashions herself after Batman. Not necessarily, and from reading this, not necessarily because she idolizes Batman, but almost dig at her dad, because he's not really supposed to be associating with vigilantes, and hmm. he's it's this urban legend and this myth in, in Gotham City, and what better way to get back at her dad than dress up as somebody that... He's really not supposed to be in cahoots with. Um, it kind of highlights the fact that um, Black Canary is somebody that she looks up to and goes out of her way to try to find a way to contact Black Canary, get in touch with the Justice Society. It also shows some things where um, her background in uh, technology and what she later on in life goes on to become the Oracle and the mainframe to Batman's network of information. It shows where she got those skills and how she used them, even at this beginning stage of her career. It's a, it was a miniseries back in 2002. I believe that there are six books. I read the first one, and I'm pretty intrigued to read the rest of them. Like I said, Marcos Martin is the artist. He has drawn some amazing Spider-Man things that I think, Matt, you've enjoyed in the past. And uh, he also drew Doctor Strange, The Oath, which, Paul, I think you enjoyed as well. So, so why, what made you pick up this book? One of those things on Comixology, it just popped up as something that it, they might have had a sale going on or something like that. Because it's, you know, the, in July upcoming, it's going to be Batman's 75th anniversary. And they've been having some you know, Batman-centric things going on. The artwork reminds me of Tim Sale. It not as weird as Tim Sale, but and not and a little lighter on the blacks as Tim Sale, which I'm sure you're a fan of. Oh, come on! No. I agree with you, Matt. This reminds me of the Long Halloween, even with the the writing. Even mm. reminds me a little bit of it. I'm sorry, who's the writer again? Right, it's a it's a duo of Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon. Chuck okay. Dixon is Chuck long Dixon's time awesome. like historic Batman. Chuck writer. Dixon has never written a bad comic book. 
it's a really quality book. Um, I would recommend it to anybody. I'm not a big fan of Batgirl or Barbara Gordon or the Oracle or anything like that. But this book drew me in with the artwork, the idea of telling an origin story. I always seem to enjoy those. Um, so I would say that this is a good starting point for just if you ever want to read something about Batgirl, you ever were interested in the character, I would say Batgirl Year One is a good place to start. How many issues is it? I believe it's six issues. I, I've only purchased the first two, but I'm certainly going to finish up the series. Right. And uh, I don't feel like it's dated at all. Um, I feel like it's pretty timeless, actually. And uh, it's, a, it's a really good story that I'm excited to finish. Cool. That was unexpected, but I, um, it looked good. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, really, that really was unexpected. That, that's weird. That why do you guys think that it's so unexpected? Um. Well, it's DC number one. Okay. And number two of all the DC characters, I if you told me guess what DC character Ian is reading, Batgirl would have been like somewhere in the hundreds that I would have guessed. I think if you were like, oh, I found this Nightwing miniseries. I'd have been like, yeah, okay. Or Batman, or, well, maybe not Superman, but... But if we're talking, like, second, third-tier characters, like, I, I wouldn't be so surprised by by Nightwing or something like or that. Or Wonder Woman, something Wonder Woman. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, Batgirl. And, and not only that, but older stuff, like, pre-New 52. Like, I don't think it's that old. I mean, what year is this from? 2002. Oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's getting up there now. So... Paul, before we wrap up the show tonight, I'm sure that you've read a thing or two aside from King's scores. I have. I've squeezed in some comic book reading during my uh, run to a Stanley Cup championship. And uh, I've been reading Dominic's Batman the Cult. Dominic wrote it? Uh, Well, Dominic bought it and he let me borrow it. Oh, okay. And, uh, man, it's tough. It's real tough. Uh... It is it's written by Jim Starlin with art by Bernie Wrightson. And I know Bernie Wrightson is, uh, he gets a lot of, of credit. There's lots of people love Bernie Wrightson's artwork. It's from 91. I, no, it's from 88. This edition is from 91. But the book's from 88, and holy shit does it look like it's from 88. Uh, the colors How are, dare it look said it before on this podcast, and I'm sure I will say it again in the future. I have a real hard time going back and reading old comic books. Um, I think I can get through some 90s books, but 80s books are really fucking hard to read. What about the books that you read when you first got into comics? Are they starting to feel kind of dated to you? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll put Hush on the reading list. And I'll go back and, and see if that feels dated. I'm willing to bet that it doesn't, because Jim Lee still does current stuff, and I don't. I don't know. I'll have to see. I was gonna say I don't think the the way colors and everything are being done right now, and the way the books produced is so far off from 2001. But I'm maybe surprised. I think the colors in Hush were were pretty flat. But that, I think, was an artistic decision versus a technology limitation. But uh, this book has a lot of the same coloring as the Batman Zero Year 
a lot of fuchsia. Ooh, yeah, yeah. A lot of one-tone, uh, kind of bright, pastel-y colors, and uh, I can't do it. I don't think Bernie Wrightson's artwork is all that great. And the story's just nuts. It's about um, this old... I guess he's an American Indian that uh, he's been... He's kind of like a Vandal Savage type. He's been around for years. Um, he was... The reason some of the early settlers to America, some early colonies that settled in America just disappeared, uh, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, Roanoke, where the town still stands, but everyone has just disappeared. Everyone's gone. And uh, the plot is this guy comes to Gotham City and he's like, all right, there's too much, too much violence. This place is too bad. So I'm going to do what the police and this Batman can't do. And I'm going to get all these homeless people, all these vagabonds and vagrants, I'll get them together. I'm going to teach them my word, teach them, you know, what I want to do. Then we're going to go out and we're going to kill pimps and drug dealers and they just start killing people. And they catch Batman, and I'm only about halfway through it. You don't know how they catch Batman. Beginning of the book, Batman's chained up in, in their den and they're starving him and they're beating him and... They put him through this the, this uh, really rough psychological torture to where Batman starts believing the message. They also dose him with some some kind of poison, so he starts believing the message, and he's one of he becomes one of them. And uh, eventually, he gets his shit together, and Robin comes down into the sewers to help him. And that's where I'm at right now. Is this based with the? Um... Remember the, what was it, like the Sewer Dwellers or something from Batman, the animated series? Was that inspired by this story? Um, I don't, I don't re- remember that. It was the one where the dude lived in the sewers with all, like, the children and stuff. Um, with the, he had, like, the two pet alligators. Do you remember that in the animated series? Vaguely. The two alligators... Rings a bell. But and then, and then finally, that. like, the kids came up from the sewers and, like, the sun was so bright to them. No? Nothing says not 1980s sure. like this pattern right here. Yeah, on, on, on the title page. It's, it's yeah, like abstract, purpley, pinky, pastel-y, like, flecked. Just, I think I've seen, I saw that in every hotel yeah, that I ever went it's to. Super. In the 80s and 90s. Flipping through that book, Paul, I, I definitely see where you're getting hung up on the the artwork. Um, but I don't know. I think Bernie Wrightson's a pretty good artist, and you know they're cramming a lot of of art onto those pages, a lot of panels. Um, so there's a lot of storytelling going on on each page. Whereas maybe modern comics kind of spread it out a little bit more. That's one of my criticisms about older comic books, is that they cram a lot of dialogue, a lot of word balloons into a small amount of space, and don't let the page breathe. And the classic TV talking heads from 80s books. You can't read a fucking comic book from the 80s without seeing the... Square shape of the TV screen with a head in it. Now yeah. the, the word balloon. Very can't uh, do it. Dark Knight Returns. Now I'm going to. Uh, I have to say it because this is how I feel. <laughs> I don't think that this artwork is so bad, 
and I kind of feel like this sort of is like it feels like early Todd McFarlane artwork. Oh, I know, oh. I know, I know. I'm sorry, but it's like we almost did a full episode know, without saying that name. Like, I know, but like some of these noses and like this <laughs> panel right here, okay. like this, like I look at we, that. Look I think at we've made this nose. Look at this panel. Look at that. That looks like Todd McFarlane. I think we've made it a couple issues without invoking his name. You know, I wouldn't Ian, say it if Ian, I didn't really mean it. Ian, you are absolutely correct. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, like the actual like even pencil. even this Batman. Oh, one hundred percent. That profile. Yeah. The actual pencil and ink artwork isn't terrible. No, it's not. But it's it's not really for me. Put that along with the kind of wacky colors that show up, and I yeah, feel, there's a lot of like. Completely white, but then like pink and orange yeah. colored everything, and it's 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 a strange choice. I feel like if um, if this book had maybe a different anchor that kind of just made the the lines a little more solid and connected them, and then you put modern coloring, uh, you know, uh, techniques on there, it'd feel completely different. And I feel like Paul, you would probably be a lot more accepting of it, but. Um, Anyway, I think we covered a lot of ground here tonight. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add, guys? No? Be sure to take a look at Mac Sell's artwork. Go to iTunes, Ripper Owens. Tim Ripper Owens. Tim That's Ripper right. Owens. Uh, and take a look at some of uh, our very own Mac Sell's artwork right there on the beautiful iTunes screen. And listen to us on the most recent two episodes of the Fireside Chat. Other than that, I think we're going to wrap it up. My name's Paul McGinty. You sharp. Mac is out! Way to get that in there this time, pal. Uh, that's it for us tonight, and we'll see you next time. have a bumper if if it doesn't fit just go go with it just just end it yeah and then people will be hanging on the edge of their seats they're like ah and they listen and the music builds and it builds and it ends